Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of IndyCast. My name is Abhishek and joining me over the phone from London this time is The Economist's Innovations Editor, Paul Markley. A few weeks back, The Economist carried a wonderful special report authored by Paul on the third revolution, which The Economist refers to as digital manufacturing. Paul, it's great to have you here again. Hello there. Thanks. And this time I'm very happy that I didn't butcher your last name like last time. I remember calling you Markilai. <laughs> Okay. Before we get started, Paul, it's four in the evening there, and I think uh, London is readying itself for the biggest show on earth, which about a billion people will watch the the opening ceremony. What are your plans tonight for for the Olympics? Do you have any? I think we'll go down the pub and have a couple of drinks, and then come back and watch it on the television, and keep our fingers crossed that all goes smoothly. Is it the most lavish show on earth? No, because we don't have a lot of money now. So this being done a bit on the cheap, it'll be interesting to see how they get by. 9.3 billion pounds is what I read on the Economist. That's still a lot of money. Oh, it's still a lot of money, but it's not going to be the kind of level uh, that we saw in China, which was right. massive and out of this world. Right. But congratulations, it's the third time around, yeah. which uh, no other city has done. And I was just before we get started, you know, there is this little bit of trivia that I read that I think I must share with you. Is do do you know why the full marathon is at a strange figure of 26 miles and 385 yards? Why is the 385 yards added? Do you have any idea, Paul? I should imagine it was the distance between one place to another, and that's exactly what that distance was. But I, I wouldn't have a clue where that track is. You're quite close because, as in the end point of that was, incidentally, Queen Alexandra of Great Britain she demanded back in 1908 that the finish line should be right below the royal box at the London's uh, White City Stadium. Okay. So that added those 385 yards. <laughs> Okay, so it's close. Quite close. And coming to your special report now, uh, what is digital manufacturing, and why, in your words, is it a fourth revolution? What it is is a bit like the era I'm looking at, which is between technology and business. And where the two meet, there are interesting things going on. Now, in the middle of this recession, as an example, I went to a place in Woking, which is a leafy town just outside London. Not the sort of place where you'd expect to see a factory at all. There, in the middle of the recession, a company is building a brand new car factory, completely state of the art and absolutely modern. Now that company is McLaren, who is better known as a Formula One racing company. What they were doing is they were going to take on Ferrari, both on the track and off the track. By building a brand new factory and a brand new sports car, if you build a Formula One car, you have to move really quickly. You have to develop very fast, even between races. You need to get in the wind tunnel. You need to test things. You need to simulate things. So they were able to develop a sports car for the road and to test it and to drive it in a simulator well before they ever built an actual real vehicle. Now the second thing that there was going on there was novel materials. We know car factories, and it's usually lots of steel, lots of stamping presses, robots welding things up, sparks flying everywhere. Right. There's absolutely none of that in this factory. This factory is as clean as a hospital operating theatre, and most of this, the body of this car is being made out of carbon fibre, which is a lightweight material, twice as strong as steel, but half the weight. And there's automation, and you're seeing cleverer robots. 
And although I didn't see the other thing there, but I did in another factory, which was um, an Airbus or Eads factory, machines called 3D printers, which are actually making physical objects. Now, you put all those things together, and you suddenly start to see that manufacturing is changing. Right. Just drawing from your example of, you know, how new materials have come about and making things easier. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising then, uh, in the Beijing Olympics in 2008, 23 out of the 25 world records in swimming were broken. Yeah. And the reason is the swimmers wore a swimsuit which mimics shark skin and apparently throws some better oxygen flow to the muscles, makes you more hydrodynamic and traps air to increase buoyancy. So is this also an example of new age manufacturing where you know you get newer materials to make life more competitive or better? Or yeah. Well, the things that enabled that, well, one is the new materials you can use to make a suit like that. Two, you can use computers to actually see how the complex fluid dynamics work, how the flow of water over surfaces work. You know, we all thought things had to be really smooth in order to go through the water quickly, but then we find out that actually a shark that goes through the water very quickly is actually a little bit rough. There's a, there's a micro shape there. And so that's another change that we've seen. So people are training for the Olympics wearing the most elaborate electronics kit that's measuring absolutely everything. So at the end of a test, a training session, they know exactly what was going on because it's all being analyzed. It's showing people what really does make them faster, taking the guesswork out of it. Absolutely. You spoke a little something on 3D printing, Paul. Uh, how big is it in the U.S.? What are some of its applications? What can it do? Well, at the moment, it's an early technology. It's only about 20-odd years old, but it's getting much cleverer now. And its principal use is rapid prototyping. You can make something very quickly. I mean, prototype, you know, if you want to make a one-off thing, it's very expensive. You have to go to a machine shop and say, I want one of these. And they say, well, we've got to set up the lathes, and we've got to set up the cutters, and we've got to make the molds, and we've got to pour the material, and it's all going to cost a fortune just to make one of them. Well, some of this technology, besides just making sort of plastic prototypes, it's good enough to actually be the real product. And we're talking here about machines that range in price from a million dollars, which you might use for a, a 3D printer that produces titanium parts for satellites or for airplanes to a couple of hundred dollars for a small 3D printer which you could assemble at home and uh, get some free software and make things like the pieces for a chess set out of plastic. So there's a big broad range of machines and things here. When we need an implant or something for our body, you need it to be customized and so a 3D printer is ideal. Uh, hearing aid shells, things like this, teeth crowns, plastic teeth braces. These are all things in which are involving 3D printing. Right. One example that comes to mind is the movie The Dark Knight Rises by Christopher Nolan. And there, the villain is played by a character called Bane. Yeah. Now, he wears an elaborate costume. It has a jacket and a mask. And when they first made this, it wasn't weaved out of cloth. Instead, they created a computer-animated 3D image of the actor Tom Hardy. Yeah. He's quite a bulky character, you know. He And then yeah. they, they tried out different angles to it. So is this 3D printing again, which is being used in the, the movie industry? It has been used in the movie industry. It's been used to make animated cartoons, especially some of those ones where they make little clay models and they shoot and then they bend the clay model and then they make another one and they make <laughs> another one. But if you've got a 3D printer, you can print them all out. They are being used for computer animation, yeah. They're also starting to be used for jewellery as well. 
because jewelry can be customized. Initially, they were used to print the mold. So you'd make the mold. I mean, you know, it's a thousand-year-old technology of what you call lost wax casting, which is done all over the world. So you make a mold out of wax, and, and that's the shape of the thing you want. And then you cover that in a plaster. You pour in the molten silver or the molten jewel material. That melts the wax and takes the shape of the object, and then you break it out. But now we're starting to see the 3D printer actually make the jewellery because wow. they're finding, to use the word inks, if you like, that enabling the printing of silver and 22-karat gold. So you could almost imagine a jeweler's shop in the future that you could walk into and say, I'd like one of those, but I'd quite like that to be a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And, and they'll say, well, you know, if you pop back tomorrow, we'll print you one. And not just uh, high-end stuff. I also read in your report, and which was quite amusing, is that food can be printed out too. How does that work? Well, it's actually not that complicated, <laughs> if you like. And if you take a big bag and put some icing powder in and squeeze it, then you can get a little filament of uh, material coming out at the end, which you can use to... Um, uh, make a shape like icing a cake or making a flower. It's like a big glue gun. The computer software takes slices through the thing that you want to make and the glue gun or the, or the icing squeezer, if you like, just makes those shapes for you and just keeps building them up. So that's the way you could do it. Um, you, could, you could do it with chocolate, you could do it with other things like that. It's more really a bit of fun. Right. And your report also talks about uh, nanotechnology, and we've read so much about it in the past. Are there any cool innovations that come to mind where you thought, wow? Yeah. There's two things with nanotechnology. One is a, a report which I just completed, which is actually in The Economist out today, which is using nanotechnology to make inks that are capable of being printed as electronic inks onto products. These inks, conductors or resistors or semiconductors, and this is the next stage of where 3D printing is going. So you can print a plastic case that might look like a cell phone. Well, these technologies allow you to print in that case the electronics that make the cell phone work. Yeah. So you're edging towards the fact of printing a cell phone that you can take out of the printer put in a SIM card, and, and it works. This is not just a blueprint. You're saying it's a working model. A working telephone, yeah. Wow. Now, we're a long way from that. We are a long way from that, I've got to say. But now you're asking about other cool ideas for nanoparticles. Yes, there are. Self-cleaning glass is the, is the one that's been around for a number of years. You can, using nanoparticles, coat glass and make it repel water in such a way that when it rains heavily, the droplets form and wash the dirt off the glass so you don't have to clean the glass anymore. That's been around a number of years. Well, they could take that similar idea of nanoparticles and coat the inter internals of steam turbine engines. And there's a possibility there we could make steam turbine engines more efficient by not um, clogging up so much with uh, steam and, and, and combustion problems. And, and that's one possibility I saw. Um, another is where you combine the production of these particles with biology. And you're getting now, and this work has been going on at MIT with Professor Belcher there, that they are using viruses to produce materials. They've got a virus that can produce the materials for a battery, for instance. 
So you could make you could make a bat you could get your viruses together and your viruses will make you a battery or make you the materials that will do it. It sounds absolutely crazy. And they got the idea from nature. You know, how does a, a soft, sluggy thing that falls around the sea how did that develop the ability to produce an abalone shell, you know, a beautiful shell? Well, it somehow acquired in its genes the ability to manufacture those nanoparticles that form the shell around itself. Um, so therefore, biology is capable of manufacturing things. And if you can tweak these genes around, you maybe get them get these uh, creatures to manufacture things for you. So combination of 3D printers and viruses making things for you. It's a very, very strange world we're heading into. Some of these things are further ahead in the world of um, commercial reality. Certainly 3D printers are making things with viruses a little bit further away, but not that far away. We, you know, we may five, ten years start to see things. One of the things is you could, because they're getting cheaper all the time, have one of these 3D printers at home. Oh, really? and, and make stuff yourself. Oh yes, yeah. There's a number of commercial ones that are coming onto the market now for sort of under two thousand US dollars, and in some cases, you know, around six or seven hundred US dollars. That's simply amazing. I, I wouldn't want. I would not want the glass which repels water, though. It's just too transparent. You might have kids bumping into it without knowing that there is a glass there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but on a serious note, Paul. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, 39. He, he's not that old. He's an engineer, a very bright person. But when I told him about nanotechnology, you know, did they have this during their engineering days, which was about 12 mm. years back? That was not the case. So today, how ahead will today's engineers be? Because will there be a big, big gap between the engineers that are produced today as compared to what they were about 10 years back? And should manufacturers be worried that all these gizmos and nanotechnology and 3D printing are slowly taking up the, the real manufacturing, the real deal of getting things out on a conveyor belt. I certainly do meet people and I, I, you know, I talk to them about 3D printing and they're kind of, some are quite dismissive of it. They say, they say oh, well, that's all right for just making prototypes or for, but the quality is not very good. You know, it's never going to really replace mass manufacturing. And so they're quite dismissive of it. And you talk to other people and they say, God, this, this could change the world. So, you know, maybe what happens is somewhere in the middle. But one I would say is don't be dismissive of it. You know, I was at a manufacturing exhibition in Germany and a huge thing. There was all these amazing machine tools from all over the world and it was all high tech and all computer driven. And, and I'm wandering around there, hall after hall of this in Germany. And the one thing I couldn't find anywhere in that hall was that most basic tool of manufacturing, a hammer. There were no hammers at all. So I, I end up where there's these 3D printers, and they printed me a hammer. <laughs> and I got now a very nice hammer, which they printed for me. You had a working hammer that, that they printed for you. Was that a working Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that good. It's made out of sort of plastic. It's a little plasticky. It's not that good for putting a nail in the wall, but it would probably do it. But it was done on a, basically it was done on a machine that cost a few hundred thousand dollars. If I'd have found one that cost a million dollars, they probably could have done me a better one. But, you know, as I said, this technology is only 20 years old. I wouldn't be dismissive of it at all. Although, but I do think you're absolutely right that engineers will face incredible changes, pretty much the same changes people faced when the computer came along. Right. But, you know, when you have everything automized on a laptop, will it kill the charm of building the real stuff? There is this joke that uh, you must have heard of a retired engineer who's summoned on 
the shop floor because something has gone wrong and a particular machine or a widget making machine and everyone's tried it nothing's happened so this engineer goes around that machine a couple of times takes a hammer which is not printed by the way takes takes a real <laughs> takes a real hammer and then hammers one into the into one of the components and bang the thing starts to run and he produces a bill of ten thousand dollars and the CEO asks him hey man it just took you two minutes to fix this why the ten thousand dollar bill and he says I, I threw in the hammer hit for free the ten thousand dollars was for knowing where to hit it <laughs> in today's world this could be resolved by doing some complex computer simulations sitting somewhere in an air-conditioned chamber which will diagnose the problem so will this put real engineers out of work or will it at least make them slightly more insecure about the job no I think it might actually do the reverse to be honest because what you'll find is that it will bring engineering to more people if you can buy a machine for a few hundred dollars that will make things it means you can sit at home and make things which you probably couldn't do before because you would have required a factory or you would have required a lathe or you would have required a forge. Well, now you can sit at home and actually produce things. And if you couldn't afford the machine, you can now go online and upload your designs to an online service which will 3D print them for you and send them back to you in the post. And these online services will more or less allow anyone with a laptop to become a manufacturer. So that means that really does empower people to work at home and in remote locations and in villages and places like that. And then you, you take the idea of the service engineer. These are the guys that come and fix your washing machine or your, your anything in your house that's broken. Of course, often they look at it and say, oh, I can't repair that because we can't get the part anymore. Right. Well, if you've got a 3D printer in your van or your lorry, you can say, I'm just going to pop outside and print a new spare part for you. And so they can go pop outside. And often, often, as you know, what's broken is nothing terribly sophisticated. It's just a bendy bit of plastic. Well, 3D printers are already perfectly capable of printing bendy bits of plastic. In that sense, we're going to see engineers and engineering greatly empowered by this because of the lower cost of entry to actually make things and repair things. I think it's it's like a Harry Potter world in the real world. If you if it if that's very much like that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Thank you, Paul, for your time. This has been awesome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Would you would you be willing to take a few questions like they have on television series, like a quick rapid fire round about about the Economist? Okay, well we'll go for it then. Okay. Here we go. How would you describe in one word the Economist's editorial view of the world? Uh, optimistic. Who said this? I used to think. Now I just read the Economist. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> this was Larry Ellison of Oracle. Okay. Yep. And as an editor, Paul, name one journalistic liberty that your correspondent will take in an article that he files with you and that you'll be willing to pardon or condone. Any journalistic liberty that he takes, you think? Ooh. Um, well, I'm prepared to uh, allow um, humor. Ah. And one such liberty that you will never be willing to pardon? Americanisms. Ah, could you describe that a little more in detail? What does that mean? Some of the words we see in America. So instead of saying in the future, I'll say what we're going to talk about going forwards or these 
business phrases that crop up all the time and they're unnecessary and they're awkward and they're clumsy and people invent them when one good word would work. And Got it. A last couple of them. One is, if the economist were a cartoon character, what do you think it would be like? Hmm. <laughs> I think Harry Potter. You mentioned it earlier. <laughs> awesome. You know, Daniel Franklin said asterisk because he's bold and plucky. Okay. <laughs> I like Harry Potter. And tell me, yeah. uh, Paul, you've been working with The Economist for... for it's about 30 odd years, yeah. About 30 odd years. Tell me, one of the biggest compliments that you've received in your, in your stint at The Economist, if you can think of any? That's, that's a tough one, that. It has amused and interested people, and that it, in, it interests people, I think, is, is the most flattering comment you could get, yeah. And you don't mind that you guys don't have bylines? No, anonymity is quite nice sometimes. That's great. Thank you, Paul. You've been absolutely generous with your time. Thank you again. That's all right. Much. Take care. Bye. Bye.